Okay, I'm glad you're here. We have some very interesting things to discuss today. And it's all dealing with the flood, this great flood that, that, that filled the earth. Um, one of the interesting things is if you, if you research this, you'll see that many different societies, ancient civilizations, all record a, a great flood. And so many of the circumstances surrounding this event seem so way out. You might be tempted to say, well, this is metaphorical or something like that. And we actually say, no, 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 this happened. This happened the way it was recorded. And we're going to get into the Talmud's own explanation of the miraculousness of these events. In other words, how can we understand them? And the Gemara is going to lay down one idea, which is like, kind of like, like a bomb will go off in your brain, or at least it did in mine, that really contextualizes all the miracles that occurred. Okay, so I'm just kind of setting the stage. And it all revolves around a very innocent looking phrase in the Torah that I'm going to read to you, because this is to me just like the, just the fun and the, the excitement of Torah study. Because where you can find that innocent phrases, which again, you, speaking for myself, I would just quickly read over, turn out to contain bottomless wisdom. This is chapter 6, verse 4. So here's the phrase. For in seven days more time, I will send rain upon the earth. Okay, that's it. That's the phrase. <laughs> And then it goes on. It's going to be for 40 days and 40 nights. And the verse continues. But this little preamble at the top of the verse, for in seven more days time, wouldn't you, if you were me, wouldn't you just like read right over that? Okay, now we're going to find out the most exalted events are being referred to. Because the question is, what were those seven days? I mean, we get it. 40 days and 40 nights. Ever since we've been children, we've heard that phrase. 40 days and 40 nights, it's rained. Very good. But why is the Torah talking about this seven days before the 40 days and the 40 nights? Okay, so hopefully I am wetting your appetite for this like little mystery, right? Which is like sitting right there in front of our eyes. Um, and if you want to see amazing commentaries about the flood, things that you don't really hear discussed. Look it up. It's in Gomorrah Sanhedrin. And what I'm going to be reading to you right now is uh, page 108b, B3, if you have the Art Scroll Gomorrah. Before I get into the seven days, I want to tell you just a couple of very, very cool things. One, I heard from Rabbi Wolfson, Shlita, who said that the animals that went onto the ark, remember there were pairs of animals from all the different species. So you ready for this? You might ask yourself the question, how were each pair which got onto the ark chosen? Right? You know, we, we just kind of, we're just so amazed of the, this visual of this parade of animals going onto the ark that we don't, we don't ask logical questions. But there is an answer to that, which is that tzaddikim from each species were the ones that made it onto the ark. Isn't that wonderful? That's like, 
so to speak, like the Rebbe and the Rebetzin of each species made it onto the Ark. And that's, that's who was represented. So, so I just, I love that because to think that among the animals that there are like righteous or like, just like more special than other, you know, individuals. I, I, I know probably for pet lovers out there, that probably comes as a great validation because I'll just tell you something about my growing up for a moment. I, my dad was a psychologist and he had his office in the house. And so we never had like dogs or anything like that because people would ring the doorbell and my dad was concerned that the dogs would start barking and they'd run toward the person who's, you know, coming to have some therapy done and that it would just rattle the person. And so therefore no pets. So, so I didn't grow up with pets, but I know a lot of people did and they love them to death, love animals to death. And so people who are familiar with animals can sense that, wow, this one is like extra special. So, so anyway, you see that the most special from each species, those are the ones who made it onto the ark. Okay. But now let's go back to this idea of the seven days. And I'll tell you first what Rashi says. Rashi gives maybe kind of the most bread and butter answer. And, you know, he's, he's known as giving pshat, which is kind of like the basic definition of what's going on. Um, but we have to always start with Rashi, and then we can build on to the more sort of wild commentaries that are given on this. So Rashi says that Methuselah, that's how you say his name in English anyway, Methuselah, as you might know, is the oldest person recorded in all of Torah. And he was righteous, and God didn't want him to see the flood, meaning to say the destruction of the world. And so he dies right before it happens, and then God waits a seven-day period, which to this day, there are the laws of sitting Shiva, which is the seven days after someone passes. You know, the, the observance of a departed soul is more elaborate than that. After the seven days, and there's 30 days, and then there's 12 months. So there's a whole kind of like escalating evolution of the soul's travels from our world into the next. Nonetheless, these seven days are sort of the, the strictest in terms of mourning. And they've been observed since time immemorial. And you see a record of the seven days of mourning right here, right before the flood, that, that not just out of respect for Methuselah, but eulogies are said during the seven days. And what's the definition of a good eulogy? Well, you might say it should be something that comforts the family, and, and that wouldn't be wrong, or something that really captures the essence of the person. Again, that wouldn't be wrong. But from the sage's point of view, what a home run eulogy is, something that makes the people who are present want to be better people. That you use the life of the person that just departed to inspire people to do tshuva and to just want to get absolutely, you know, the most, most, most out of life. And we're going to talk about that, getting the most out of life. Because 
from the generation of the flood's point of view, they're considered really like poster children for corruption and perversion. They just went for it in every direction, in every way. Um, but we're going to kind of peel that back a little bit and go a little bit deeper because there's, there's more than meets the eye on a surface level going on there. In other words, what is hedonism? Hedonism we would define as the just chasing after pleasure running after pleasure. But is there more to it than that? So we're going to get into that a little bit later. So the idea was the eulogies after Methuselah died could still, as a last-ditch effort, arouse the generation of the flood to tshuva, to sort of like correcting their ways, and then the flood could have been averted. So that's what Rashi is bringing, and the Gomorrah elaborates on that. That's number one. Okay, so now we're going to get, as promised, we're going to get a little more way out. You ready? This seven days, does this, this the period seven days like ring any bells for you? Okay, we said it's like seven days of Shiva. That's true. But there's an even more iconic seven days. Does anything come to mind? How about the seven days of creation? So what the Gomorrah is saying, and to me this is absolutely fascinating, the Gomorrah says that, do you know what God was doing during this seven days before the flood started? You ready? He was unwinding the laws of nature that were established during the seven days of creation. Do, do you hear that? Phenomenal. This is mind-blowing. We started off by saying, we believe that this event took place. But how could this event take place? So the simple answer is that it was all miracles. It's just all miracles. But how is that? And the answer is because right before it happened, there was this seven-day period where God unwound all of the laws of nature that he put into place during the first seven days of creation. And the Gomorrah even adds a detail, which is absolutely phenomenal. You ready? It says that during the flood, the sun rose in the west and set in the east. Just to give you a, a bit of imagery of how everything that we're used to just went out the window. And, and there's a verse that the Gomorrah brings, and this is going to be in chapter 8, verse 22. This is after the flood, okay? So it says, henceforth, meaning after the flood, all of the days, keyword days, all of the days of the earth, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Meaning that during this year of the flood, all of these laws of nature did cease. So again, to me, that's really striking. Because 
once you understand that the laws of nature have gone out the window, then of course anything can happen. Okay, so so that's that's way out there explanation number one. Although, as way out as it is, it's it's coming to explain the way outness of the entire story, which actually makes the story much more understandable and grounded, at least in the modern um, context. You know, in terms of what we know about just science and whatnot. So. I think I think that that's really compelling and at least for me like truly fascinating. All right, now we're going to go for another explanation also from the Gomorrah. It's approaching everything from a very different angle. Uh and and again, lots of lessons in this. So and totally surprising because I never heard anyone mention this. So there's a good chance this is going to be new to you. So the Gomorrah says, during that seven days, God gave this generation, which is the most corrupt generation ever, the light of the world to come and the reward of the world to come. Olamaba gave them a taste of that for seven days. Now, if you think about that, that's a real head scratcher. Like, totally counterintuitive. How could it be that the generation of the flood, who the Mishnah says, we're going to go into just, I, I just want to tell you just how big a question this is. So let's just widen, widen the lens, because we, we need to know more about this generation of the flood, okay? The Mishnah says that the generation of the flood has no share in the world to come. Zero. They're just canceled. When you talk about cancel culture. This is like, this is really cancel culture. They've got no share in the world to come. They're blotted out. But then later in the Gomorrah, you have this group called the Dorshe Rishimos. Now the Dorshe Rishimos are this very sort of like mysterious, this mysterious group that appear periodically throughout the Talmud. The Dorshe Rishimos say that the generation of the flood does have a share in the world to come. And in fact, the Mishnah lists some other figures, including some wicked kings like Menasha and Ahab, people like that, people who are just like the, 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 the worst of the worst. And the Dorshe Rishimos say, no, 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 they also have a share in the world to come. So this, this group is going counter to the Mishnah. So, Dorshe Rishimos, Dorshe comes from the word to darshan, right? Darshan means to explain. Rishimos means an impression. So, they're the explainers of impressions. Or, if you want to be a little bit more poetic, interpreters of shadows. <laughs> okay? That might be a more of a loose translation. But these are... The, the Chachamim, the sages who are like digging like really deep, okay? And the people who are diving really, really deep, they're saying, no, 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 they also have a share in the world to come. Okay, so now we're, we have to figure out all of this. Let's add to the question. Rav Frimer is asking this question in the Eretzvi. He quotes the Ari, the Ari HaKodesh who says the following, 
that the generation of the flood is reincarnated as the generation, the Dora Flaga, it's called, the generation of the Tower of Babel. Those are the people who tried to war against God. How do you make a war against God? How does that make any sense? Well, after the flood, God promises that he's never going to destroy the world again with water. Okay, so anyone who is afraid of nuclear warfare wiping out the earth, continue to be afraid of nuclear warfare wiping out the earth because it was never promised other than it wouldn't be done by water. So the the Tower of Babel generation said, you know what? If we build a tower high enough, we can protect ourselves from the flood. That, that's what the rabbis explain that, that they were up to. One thing that they were up to anyway. And so therefore, what they were going to do is to show their independence from the fact that God can't get them. And then they can just kind of behave however they want because they understand that they're, they've sort of outsmarted God. So, so it's, it's a little harder than that. <laughs> But anyway, just want to give you one minute on the Tower of Babel there. So, so let's backtrack. So we say, the Ari says that the generation of the flood gets reincarnated as the generation of the Tower of Babel. Who gets reincarnated, you ready for this? As the Jewish people who get the Torah at Mount Sinai. So that might be a very surprise evolution to you. And that might even seem like uncomfortable or shocking or unbelievable. But this is what the Ari says. And now let me just tell you how I understand it. Because I remember when I first heard it, I was like, uh, you know... I'm not pleased with that information, but but I understand it better now. I do. And I understand it in the following way. All that exists is God. That's all that exists. And so all of us are just emanations of godliness. And we have responsibilities and we have things to do, and, you know, sometimes we're getting it together better than other times. But the bottom line is, because all that exists is God, no one gets left behind. That's that's the idea. And that's the whole idea of reincarnation, is that maybe you didn't get it during this lifetime, but you'll get it during the next lifetime. You'll figure it out. You will eventually figure it out. And that's part of the reason why it's taking so long for Mashiach to come. Because it's, it's these, these life cycles are lengthy. And these generational cycles are lengthy. And the sooner that we learn that all there is is God, and that we have to do God's will because that's all that exists, the closer we're going to come, the faster we're coming, going to come to, to, to fixing what we need to fix and bringing about the next year. And and I want to 
go a little bit deeper. I want to go a little bit deeper. Because there's an attitudinal thing. And as Rip Shlomo would say, I want everyone please to, to open up your hearts. Because what I'm about to tell you right now, you really have to have an open heart to hear and to understand. There's a prayer that we say, it's in the beginning of the prayer book. In Hebrew, it's called Le'olam Yehe Adam. It's, for me, it's one of the absolute most special prayers. But if you just kind of show up in shul, you, you'll never end up saying it. Because these are one of those early prayers in the prayer book that you kind of have to get up early and, and say. So you got to be a little bit motivated. A, to even know that this prayer exists because it's in the very first pages of the prayer book. And B, to actually find the time to say it. But there's a line in here that I think really captures the attitude that all of us really need to have. And what is, I would say, pretty much lacking from our generation almost entirely. And this has been going on for several generations right now. It's a paradigm shift. And it's phrased so simply and so beautifully. So let me just read you the lines, okay? In fact, let me, let me read you the opening lines. I'll, I'll just read you into it. Because the, the opening of this prayer is, is very, very beautiful. I'm going to read it in English. Always let a person be God-fearing privately and publicly. Acknowledge the truth. Speak the truth within his heart and arise early and proclaim. All right, here comes the line. Master of all worlds and Lord of all lords. Here's the line, you ready? Not in the merit of our righteousness do we cast our supplications before you, but in the merit of your abundant mercy. And it's a much longer prayer, but, but these are the lines that I want to read to you and discuss for a moment. Not in the merit of our righteousness do we cast our supplications before you, but in the merit of your abundant mercy. You see, so many of us think that God is an ATM, right? That's, that's, what does ATM stand for? I think automated teller machine, right? That you, I did a mitzvah God and now I'm ready to cash out. <laughs> Where's my money? Where's my money, God? Right? I just did this good thing. Let the phone ring. I'm ready for my next gig. And, and we see a lack of justice in the world. We see a lack of kindness from God or that God isn't paying attention to us or we reach a million wrong conclusions when we feel as though we've done our act of righteousness and we expect just abundance to open up immediately and, and that's just what it is. And there's something so much deeper going on, which is that this is God's world. We live in God's world. Everything belongs to God, including us. It's all God's. 
You know, I, I've quoted Rabbi Green before on this, but I just, I love it so much. I love it so much. He said, those are your eyes? Where's the receipt? They belong to you? You, you purchased them? They're yours? Where's the receipt? That's your mouth? That's your heart? Those are your hands? Those are your legs? Where's the receipt? Show me the receipt. They belong to you? You purchased them? Where's the receipt? I mean, that's, to me, that's like, whoa. <laughs> like, like, game over, conversation over. I know in my life, I once had an experience like that. I was just starting to, you know, take on more mitzvahs. I was in the old city of Jerusalem, and I went to visit Rabbi Moshe Schloss in the old city. Those of you who know him, very amazing person. I went to his rooftop, and he was like sitting on his rooftop, learning Torah in the sun with a, a direct view of the Kotel. And I got up there. I didn't know him, but someone said, oh, you should check him out. So I was like, okay. So I get up there, and he, I remember the first thing he said to me, he said, he said I've got a front row seat for when the Messiah comes. Because <laughs> he's literally overlooking the Kotel. So that made an impression on me. And then he turns to me, and one of the first things he says, he's just met me, is, are you wearing tzitzis? And it was really, it was that was like something that I struggled with a, a lot, you know? And I wasn't. So he said to me, who are your heroes in Judaism? And so I remember I said, Rashi and Reb Shlomo Karlbach. And he said, do they wear tzitzis? And I said, yes. And he says, do you know more than they knew? And then, and then I started wearing tzitzis. <laughs> it was like, well, those boxing matches where there's a lot of buildup for the fight and then one person punches the other person and knocks them out with one swing. It's like, well, oh, I guess we aren't going 15 rounds. <laughs> I guess the fight is over. <laughs> so, you know, when Rabbi Green says, where's the receipt for your eyes if they belong to you? To me, that's like just one of those knockout punches. Because the whole world belongs to God. The whole world belongs to God. So if the whole world belongs to God, now listen to the following line again. Not in the merit of our righteousness do we cast our supplications before you, but in the merit of your abundant mercy. <laughs> ah, now it makes perfect sense. Because everything is yours, God. So I'm just asking for your mercy. I'm just asking for your mercy. And that's the attitudinal shift that I'm talking about. What is everyone's greatest possession today? Their iPhone, right? So it's interesting that it's called iPhone. I, me, it's all about me. Again, I know I am the eight billionth person to make this point, but you probably haven't heard it recently. And it's the iMac right? And it's the iPod, right? Because 
everyone's orientation is it's about my righteousness, and if I'm righteous, then God, where's the cash, man? But once we realize and have the proper humility, which is the true baseline of righteousness, that everything belongs to God, and we're living in God's world, and it's all God, then then what do we have? All we can do is supplicate and ask for God's mercy. And the good news is God loves us to pieces, and no one loves you more than God. So you're in great hands. We are in great hands. We couldn't ask to be in greater hands and in more loving hands. We are. We are. But that little kind of shift in consciousness is what situates us actually in reality. And also makes life so much simpler. Because otherwise, can you, can you imagine you're a bill collector this one owes me and that one owes me and this one owes me and that one owes me and then you realize no one owes you and all you're doing is spending all your days and nights trying to collect on debts that you're actually not (laughs) no one owes you that's how we are with God that's our relationship with God for so many of us where's my this and where's my that and where's my this and where's my that and it's not holy smokes you mean there's a world and I get to be part of it And believe me, God wants to bless us with everything in our hearts. There's no question about it. You know, I know what I'm saying right now sounds a little bit strong. I get it. I'm aware of what I'm saying. But it's also the truth. And we have to incorporate this perspective into our overall consciousness. Otherwise, we're in la-la land. We're just kidding ourselves. Okay, so now I want to go back to our question. What does it mean that these seven days God shone the light of Olam Haba on this corrupt generation that the Mishnah says has no share in the world to come? But the Dorshe Rishimos, right? The explainers of shadows say do have a share in the world to come. And how does this connect to what we just learned from the Ari? That the Ari says that the generation of the flood who has no share in the world to come gets reincarnated as the generation of the Tower of Babel, which gets reincarnated as the Jewish people who got the Torah at Mount Sinai, who absolutely have a share in the world to come. So on one hand, this generation doesn't have a share in the world to come. And on the other hand, they become a generation that does have a share in the world to come. So then they do have a share in the world to come. So which is it? Do they have a share in the world to come? Or do they not have a share in the world to come? This is Rob Frimmer's question. And he's going to answer why God gave this corrupt generation Olam Abba for seven days. So the Gomorrah says, I'm going to read to you. God gave them a taste of the semblance of the reward enjoyed by the righteous in the world to come so that they would realize what goodness they deprive themselves of. You know when you're a kid and you play a game with someone and then you trick a kid and you go, nah, nah. God doesn't say nah, nah. Okay? That's not, that's not 
what he does. So what does it mean then that God gave them a taste of the world to come to show them what they weren't going to have? If it's not Nana. Well, I'll give you one explanation. You know, what, one of the most perplexing questions that people have is, why do the wicked prosper? Right? This is like one of those things that short-circuit people's brains and make them not believe in God. They see wicked people prospering, and they're like, there is no justice in the world. Well, one of the answers is that God is giving them their reward from the next world right now so that they don't have any eternal reward. So, in other words, you say it's a sign that there is no justice, but it's actually the opposite. It's a sign that there is justice because God has reward for them, but he's going to give it to them right now instead of later, which is the preferable scenario because then it's eternal and and you experience it on a much greater plane. Remember, it's very fundamental that everyone gets this idea, okay? You're not supposed to do mitzvahs for reward, but you have to know there absolutely is reward and how great that reward is. So let's just discuss the reward in the world to come for a moment. There is physical pleasure, right? Like, like you know, right now, stroking my cheek feels very nice. It's very comforting. I like the way that feels. But this is just my body. Can you imagine if I could do this to my soul? <laughs> like, how would that feel? Do you know what happens in the world to come? A person's soul, which is like if your body is sensitive, imagine what your soul is like. Like if your body is like nerve endings, right? Your soul is like, like I, I don't even have the vocabulary for it. Now imagine your soul leaves your body and gets plugged in from every side into divine light. <laughs> Your soul, which is light, gets supercharged and enveloped by divine light. It's a quantum level higher of pleasure. Ten quantum levels higher of pleasure. And then over the course of eternity, the soul rises higher and higher within God, which means that the frequencies of light become ever more charged, which means that the total pleasure and delight becomes even more ecstatic, and it never stops, because God doesn't run out of ecstasy. So what does it mean that God gave them seven days of Olam Haba now. So it could be that God was cashing them out of heaven. That God took all the reward that they were going to have in the future and just gave it to them now. And then, like the Mishnah says, justice has been done, and now all the accounts have been settled, and they're cashed out of heaven. They have no share in the world to come. Okay. That's, that's an okay shot. It's okay doesn't do much for me, but 
I, I think it's solid. It's a solid reading of the Gomorrah, but I think we can do better. So now, now we have to go to Rav Firmer. So he says the following. He says that God wanted to arouse tshuva within them. That God wanted to show them what they were missing. God wanted to show them what true delight was. So that they would have regret that they distanced themselves from this and that they would turn around their lives. And he said they did turn around their lives, but not enough to avoid their faith. But now we can understand the riddle inside the statement of the Ari that the generation of the flood becomes the generation of the Tower of Babel, which becomes the Jewish people who receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. Because now you can see the core essence of that generation, that their hearts were opened and they were aroused to want to come closer to God. And so the roots, the foundation of them coming closer and becoming the Jewish people have now been established through this seven days of connection that God shined on them. And I want to flesh out this thought, and now these are my own words, but I'm just trying to continue with what I understand Rabbi Frimmer is saying. And I want to put this explanation in very contemporary terms, okay? So imagine, imagine a drug addict. Or, like we were talking about at the beginning of the talk, a hedonist, right? Remember I told you, what is a hedonist? Someone who's just dedicating their lives to pleasure. Is there more to that? Something lurking deeper? Let's talk about it in the form of a drug addict for now, but it it applies to hedonism in general. If you go to someone and you say to them, drugs are not good for you. Stay away from drugs. They're bad. This ardent drug addict will say back to you, are you crazy? (laughs) Drugs are the greatest thing in the world. Why do you think that I'm giving my entire life for them? Because I love them so much. You go, but they're bad. And he'll say, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Why do you think I'm doing what I'm doing? So what we have here is a problem of communication. You are not talking to him in his language. And we're going to learn a practical lesson from this. You see, God knew that this generation just spoke and understood the language of pleasure. And in that way, I think it's a very, very contemporary story and a very contemporary thing that I'm talking about right now. I think this really applies to our generation very, very, very much. We understand pleasure. We do. We do. We're sold pleasure from every billboard, with every commercial, 
in every area of our life from the time that we can open our eyes and think. Everything is about pleasure. Or, you know, pleasure, the word pleasure isn't used so much. But can I tell you what word is used and it means pleasure? Fun. Was it fun? Hey, did you have a good time? Did you guys have fun? (laughs) I saw it in a book and I thought this was so great. He said, in our generation, fun equals truth. (laughs) Does that sum up our generation better than anything? Fun equals truth. Was it fun? No, it wasn't fun. Oh, I don't want to do that anymore. Where were you? Oh, I went to, I fasted on Yom Kippur. Was it fun? (laughs) Oh, I no, it wasn't fun. Well, why did you do it if it wasn't fun? Right? Fun equals truth. But God, who understands us better than anyone, God looked at this generation which spoke the language of pleasure, lived the language of pleasure, and said, you know what? I want to communicate with you. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to shine the utmost pleasure on you. Pleasure that you can't even conceive of. I'm going to shine it on you. Not for na-na. Not for that. To show you what the truth is. That the utmost, 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 utmost pleasure is through connecting with me. You see, one of the secrets, if you want to understand people, is even bad people think that they're good people. Everyone thinks they're a good person. Which means that deep down, everyone wants just to do the right thing. Now, their GPS might be wildly off, but in their minds, they think they're doing the right thing. So when you talk to people, and I'm talking about you and me right now, a practical lesson that we can learn from this. When you talk to people, you have to figure out what their language is, which means you have to become friends with them. If you're just telling them, do this or do that, or it says this here and it says that there, you're going to get nowhere. Because it's like telling a drug addict, drugs are bad, and the drug addict is saying back to you, you don't know what you're talking about. Because you're not speaking their language. So here you see an instance of, another instance, yet another instance of God's love, that he didn't say, oh, you don't deserve the light from the world to come. You've been an awful generation. God doesn't say that. He says, okay, look, let me communicate with you. I understand that this is what you understand. You understand pleasure. Now I'm really going to show you pleasure. And as Rav Frimer says, that it was toward the end, okay, it wasn't enough for them to save themselves, but that it unlocked in their hearts this strong connection with God and this desire to connect to God out of love, which is the highest. So there actually was like this tremendous effect of this seven days.
Okay. I want to add one more thing. And again, open your hearts. You see, all we really have when all is said and done is our relationship with God. Everything in life can come and go. But that's the one thing that can't be taken away from us. And that's why it's so crucial that we get that relationship right. Because it's the one thing that we truly have, and it's the one thing that's going to define our existence forever. So, so like Rebbe Nachman says, where do you begin? And the answer is you have to talk to God like he's your best friend. That's where we begin. Talk to God like he's your best friend. Just talk to him, you know, when you're driving in your car, when you're walking down the street. These are the key moments. When you're praying out of a book, the problem is, is that you're saying words that aren't your words. And for a lot of people, the time that they feel least close to God is when they're praying. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Because they're just reading words that they don't understand out of a book. And then they want to be really righteous and do the right thing. So let me say it in Hebrew. Now I even understand less what I'm saying. It's so ironic. So the act of prayer for most people is a completely alienating experience. It's so ironic since these are the moments when we're supposed to be coming closest. So how do we solve the problem of prayer? And the answer is by talking to God like he's your best friend. And then eventually we'll appreciate the more formalized prayers. But for sure, say them in English. If you don't know what they mean in Hebrew, say them in English. 10,000% say them in English. And then over time, you know, you'll get the best of both worlds. You'll be able to say them in Hebrew and you'll know what you're saying. But you can give yourself a lot of time for that process. But meanwhile, talk to God like he's your best friend. Okay, but I didn't get to the point yet. There's something stopping many, many people. I wouldn't even hazard to guess what percentage of people from becoming close with God, truly close with God. And can I tell you what it is? They say, I'm afraid to let God too close into my life because I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that and I am doing this and I am doing that. And so that tells me that God is angry with me and therefore how can I let God into my life if I'm not doing these things and I feel like he's mad at me. And therefore, this dissonance settles into one's relationship with God. And then you go, I don't know how to handle this. And you put a freeze on the relationship. And you go, I, 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 I can't do this. I can't do this. 
And I can't tell you how many people fall into this category. They get turned on. They want to come closer. They find out that there's all these mitzvahs and they just go, can't do it. And it's not that they can't do it. They can do it over time if they know how to go slowly. Remember the word halacha, which means Jewish law, has the root word in it, holech, means to walk. You walk and you don't run. In other words, the process should be step by step, slowly. That's the idea, okay? But again, let me just get back to this brain-breaking dilemma that people find themselves in. How can I let God in closer if I'm not doing X and I'm not doing Y, and that makes me feel like he's mad at me? And then the relationship, how can you be close to someone who you think is mad at you? It, it doesn't work. So I want to solve this problem right now. You ready? Here's what you say to God. You say, God, I'm not doing X and I'm not doing Y, but I want to. I want to. Please help me get to that place where I'll be able to do it. And please have patience with me till I get there. And now that obstacle vanishes. And Reb Shlomo used a phrase one time that I want to apply to this process. He said, you know, a lot of people are hiding from God. He says, but you know what we have to do? We have to hide with God. And when you say to God, you know, I'm not there yet, but I want to be, I hope to be, I hope to be one day. Please just help me through the process and be patient with me. Now, you know what you're doing? You're hiding with God. When a child is born, the child just understands me. I'm hungry. My diaper's wet. And the child shouldn't know anything more. I mean, that's, that's normal. That's, that's to be expected. But we have, we're, we're sort of hardwired by our initial years. You know, my, my dad, who is a psychologist, used to say that at age six, your personality is formed. He used to tell me, like, you know, as a new parent, he says, well, you've got six years. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean that we're not capable of changing. But in terms of when is a child's personality set, at least this is what I learned from my father, it's at age six. So we, those six first six years for sure are all about just me, 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 you know? I mean, you can't expect more from a child. But the, here's my point. My point is, is that then we have to consciously evolve to the place where it's not just about my will, but I want to make my will God's will. And this is really, in a nutshell, the story of the history of the world till Mashiach comes. To what extent can we evolve ourselves to where we consciously want our will to become his will? 
And this is what I was trying to emphasize by those prayers from the that I was quoting you, that it's sort of like, not because of my righteousness, but because of your mercy, <laughs> right? Because that's a, just another phraseology of my righteousness, me, 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 me. No, 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 your mercy, you, 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 you. <laughs> like that shift from the me to the you, that's what it's all about. And again, that doesn't mean that God doesn't want to bless us with everything and that God isn't giving us all the joys and the pleasures of this world. And, you know, it says in the Talmud Yerushalmi that if there is a fruit, a delicious fruit that we haven't eaten during our lifetime, that we are going to have to give an account to this in heaven at the end of our life. In other words, if there was a permissible pleasure that we didn't take part of, and be able to connect it to God and God's goodness, we will be held accountable. Remember the very first set of instructions in the Garden of Eden. If you ask 10 people on the street who know like a little bit, what is the very first set of instructions God gives us? I'm telling you, I'll, I'll bet money on this. 10 out of 10 will tell you the following. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge. And it's not true. If you look with your own eyes, the very first thing God says to us is, eat from all of the trees <laughs> except that one. To me, that's a major, major piece of Torah for the reason that, you know, this is God introducing himself for the first time. God does not begin with a no. God begins with a giant yes. Enjoy. That's the first thing God says. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. But there are boundaries. Mm-hmm. You, you know, one of the uh, verses, and it's a, it's a Rashi that's just like, wow, like this is, you talk about strong medicine. Here's some strong medicine. In Hazinu, right, this like climactic poem that the Torah ends with, where, where Moshe Rabbeinu is saying like a hundred things at once. If you look at the commentaries on Hazinu, the, the poetry is so complex that the commentators are saying, oh, it means this. And then someone says, well, it means this. And then someone says, no, it means this. And very different things. Moshe Rabbeinu, in his final speaking, is just like summing up absolutely everything simultaneously. It's, it's quite amazing. And there is a verse that God says, I live forever. And if you look at the Rashi on that phrase, I live forever, Rashi says, God is in no hurry. He will create justice during a person's lifetime, or he'll get you after you're dead. <laughs> he, is in no, he is in no hurry whatsoever. <laughs> He's got all the time in the world. So if you don't see justice during the person's lifetime, don't worry. Do not worry, because God says, I live forever. And that's like, man, woo. And, and this is at the heart of it, of who, whose world is it, right? The verse says, Noah boarded the ark as the flood waters began. All right? So it seems like that little phrase, as the flood waters began, isn't really necessary. You know, we know the flood is coming. So just say Noah boarded the ark. 
End of verse. That's, that's the key piece of information. Why is the Torah adding this idea that Noah boarded the ark as the flood waters began? Very intriguing. That's very intriguing. And Rashi explains that there was a place in Noah's heart where he didn't believe that the flood was actually going to come. Not because the people were going to return back to God and all the rest. Not because of that. Just because I don't really believe it. You know, I mean, I do believe it. I absolutely believe it. I'm, in fact, I'm going to spend 120 years building this ark because I believe it. But when it really came down to like, okay, here's the big moment. Okay, now that I see the floodwaters are coming. Okay, now I'm getting on the ark. So Reb Shlomo being Reb Shlomo takes this to the most amazing place and just personalizes it amazingly. What does it mean that Noah was of little faith? Noah believed in God, but he didn't believe that God believed in him. (laughs) And that's what it means to be of little faith. And I'll tell you something just, just, just from my heart to yours. There's so many quote-unquote religious people. And here's what they believe. You ready? I believe, and I'm talking about people who are quote-unquote from, right? Torah observances. If you did an x-ray of their heart, here's what you'd say. I believe with all of my heart that the Torah might be true. <laughs> I, 100%, I 100% believe that this could be true. <laughs> Do you hear the difference? And they're doing it. These are the people who are doing it. I'm talking about the, I'm talking about the people who are on the bus. Does that sound like Noah? Or does Noah sound like us? More to the point? Yeah. So you got to, we, we got to, uh, I'll include myself into this. Rav Noach Weinberg, Allah Shalom, used to tell his students, know what you know. See, because there are a lot of people like, sometimes people will tell you something and you get so annoyed. I know that already. Why are you telling me this? I know that already. But do you really know it? <laughs> Like I know when so many times in my in my younger days, um, I would sit in a audience and there would be a Torah speaker up there and he would begin a thought that and, you know, my brain would shut down immediately. And I, you know, I hear this very immature voice in my head snap. I've heard that already. And then I'd ask myself, if he stopped speaking right now, could you go up there and finish the thought? And 10 out of 10 times, I would say, uh, no. And then I would say to myself, well, you didn't hear it the first time. So now why don't you try to hear it this time? So that's what it means to know what you know. There's so many things that we just instinctually, from this very immature place, we say, oh, I know that already. But do you know it? Do you really know it? And the proof is, are you living it? Because if you're not living it, you don't know it. Because that means your brain knows it, but your heart doesn't know it. Because if you're actually doing it, that means your brain and your heart know it. If, you, if you're not doing it, 
That means your brain knows it, but your heart doesn't know it, which means you don't know it. 